This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Emmalyn, Caleb F., Lydia, Stephen, and Benton. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with our serious questions. Our first question comes from Emmalyn, who asks, Are the seraphim and cherubim angels? Yes, Emmalyn, both seraphim and cherubim are words used in the Bible to denote angels. By the way, the the M sound at the end, an I-M, that's just the way that you make words plural in Hebrew. So, seraphim means uh, multiple seraphs. Cherubim mean multiple cherubs. And you might have noticed I, I pronounced it differently. That I am at the end, if you were pronouncing it more correctly, would sound like an eem, not an m. So instead of seraphim, we would say seraphim. And instead of cherubim, we would say cherubim. But cherubs, seraphs, that's fine too, and sounds maybe a little bit easier to our English-speaking ears. The seraphim are mentioned only once in the Bible, in Isaiah chapter 6, and they're described in an interesting way. They are flying above the throne, kind of hovering above the presence of God, and they have six wings. They use two of those wings to fly with, but two of them, they fold over their faces to cover their faces, and two they fold over to cover their feet. The reason for the covering is that they're in God's presence, and they are essentially, out of respect, hiding themselves from the brightness or radiance of his glory. They're also worshiping him. They're singing a song to him. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And obviously, this is the reason why the song, Holy, 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 mentions seraphim along with cherubim. Now, the cherubim are mentioned a lot more often in the Bible, but they're not the little chubby babies floating around on fluffy wings in the artistic interpretation of the word cherub. Instead, the cherubim in the Bible do things like guarding the Garden of Eden, so that Adam and Eve cannot re-enter. In fact, in Exodus 37, when God is giving commandments to Moses about the Ark of the Covenant, he instructs him, in addition to making a gold throne to put on top of the Ark of the Covenant, to make gold cherubim to go around it as a sort of representation of the heavenly host in the presence of God. So, We have seraphim and we have cherubim, and both of them are types of angels. And now Caleb F. asks, Why does Jesus say, you have heard that it was said? Does he mean what the Bible says, or is he talking about what the Pharisees have said? Well, Caleb, in Matthew 5, we saw Jesus teaching through a series of antitheses. That means that he would make a statement that was accepted as a fact, that's the thesis, and then he would offer an alternative view that kind of corrected that thesis in some way. 
And that's the antithesis. Anti just means opposite of. So the, the opposite of that thesis or the challenge to that thesis would be the antithesis. Each time that Jesus states a thesis, he uses words like, you have heard that it was said, as a way of introducing that idea. And usually when he says that, he follows up with either a quote of a commandment from the Old Testament, or at least a a quote of something that's more or less taught in the Old Testament. And because of that, it sounds as if the answer to your question would have to be that Jesus is referring to things the Bible says, not to things that the Pharisees say. But not so fast. I actually think it's better for us to assume that Jesus does mean how the Pharisees interpret the command and not the command itself. Let me explain why. Each antithesis seems like it's correcting or at least expanding the thesis. That's what leads many people to think that what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is correcting or even abolishing the Old Testament. They assume that he is doing away with the old law and making a new one. But actually, that's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is showing us instead how the law of God goes farther and demands more than we realize. He's not changing the law. He's correcting our interpretation of the law. So if you just look at the quotations themselves, you might think that Jesus is taking issue with the Bible. But when you consider what Jesus says after those quotations, it becomes clear that he's taking issue with the way that we have interpreted and qualified and changed what the Bible says. And that's why it's important to read every verse in its complete context. Now it's time for the big question, which comes this time from Lydia. Let's give Lydia a round of applause. Here's Lydia's question. Why was Jesus a boy? Well, Lydia, there is a famous book in church history that answers this question. It's by a man named Anselm, and the title in Latin is Cordeus Homo, which means, Why the God-Man? Anselm wrote his book to try to answer the question why Jesus had to be both God and man. I won't get too deep into his arguments, but suffice to say that it's no accident that Jesus was born a human boy. In fact, there are no accidents about anything to do with Jesus' birth or his life or his death or his resurrection for that matter. Now, the simple explanation for why Jesus had to be a man is because Adam was a man. There are two very important passages in the New Testament that talk about the connection between Adam and Jesus. The first one is in Romans chapter 5. Here, Paul explains that the work of Jesus can be best understood by comparing it to the work of Adam. He says that when Adam sinned, he was not acting just for himself, but as a representative of us all, essentially the father of the human race. That's why the corruption of Adam's sin and the guilt of his sin were transmitted to us all. And through Adam's action, death entered the world along with sin. So, to atone for our sin and to conquer death, a second Adam was needed. 
The first Adam failed to keep God's command on our behalf, so the second Adam had to keep it. He had to do more than that, though. He had to repair all the damage sin had caused. That's exactly what Jesus did. He paid the price of our sin and also earned for us the reward of glory. Basically, Paul helps us see how Jesus had to be like Adam in order to do what Adam was supposed to do. In the second major passage about this, which is 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. He calls the first Adam a man of dust because God made him from the dust. And he calls the second Adam a man from heaven because he means Jesus who came down from heaven to become one of us. Paul writes, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. In other words, all Adam's people are like Adam, having inherited his sin. And then Paul says, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We were like Adam, in other words, but now the Holy Spirit is at work in us, remaking us in the image of Jesus. The more you read the Bible, the more you see that even some of the most seemingly unimportant aspects of Jesus' birth and life were actually very intentional. Things you might think don't really matter actually had to be a certain way in order to fulfill the prophecy. We don't even know what all of these things are because the Bible doesn't give us each and every detail. But in this case, we have a pretty good idea of why Jesus needed to be exactly who he was. In order to save us, he needed to be fully human. But more than that, he needed to be a man who, like Adam, could act as representative of all his people. The difference is, where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. Before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. First, Stephen asks, how do you baptize people at Grace? Well, you might be wondering why this is a fun question. Well, the reason is, you asked, how do you baptize people? And sometimes the way I baptize people can be fun. People have noticed that I'm not the most natural when it comes to holding babies, for example. I never dropped anyone, but there's a first time for everything. The important thing to know about how we baptize is this. We baptize with water and apply it to the head the same way an anointing would have been applied in the Old Testament. On the forehead, which is where, spiritually speaking, names and seals are born in Scripture. Also, we baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The true God is triune. And to be baptized into the true God, you have to have his triune name, as Jesus instructs us in Matthew 28. We call this being baptized in the Trinitarian formula. And now Benton asks, what do you like best about church? Well, Benton, as a pastor, I probably have a different perspective than most people about this. I'm sure we can all point to some particular aspect of church and think, that's my favorite thing favorite point in the service, maybe a favorite teacher or class, a favorite song, and so on. But for me, my favorite things are the things God does apart from me or in spite of me. But don't get me wrong, I love the things he does with me and through me. 
If a sermon is good or a class I teach goes well, I'm grateful for that. But what I really love is when I see people at Grace doing things that I never dreamed of, serving in ways that I never suggested, and following Jesus in ways that He leads them to serve. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. Never be afraid to ask, and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. Until next time, keep asking the big questions.